Hello, welcome to Media Roots Radio. I'm your host for today, Robbie Martin. Today I'm going to be interviewing Peter Andre Smith, a journalist who wrote a pretty amazing article about the legal, aka licit, opium market. With all this talk about the opioid crisis lately, most people probably don't know that most pharmaceutical opioid drugs are actually manufactured using the precursor of actual opium poppies. What this means is, the same precursor used to make illicit heroin and illicit opioid drugs is the exact same precursor used to make pharmaceutical drugs on the illicit legal market. So without further ado, here's Peter Andre Smith. So Peter, you've written this incredible article for Pacific Standard Mag, and it's called How an Island in the Antipodes Became the World's Leading Supplier of Licit Opioids. Just tell us a little bit about how you came to reporting this story in the first place and a little bit about your background as a writer or journalist. Yeah, so I'm a science and technology reporter based in Brooklyn. And so a couple of years ago, probably in 2012, I went to Australia basically just to to, to visit a family member. And during that time, I, I learned that Tasmania, which is the island off the, the south coast of Australia, like grew all these uh, licit legal opium poppies. And so my dad's a pharmacist, and I guess I was just sort of fascinated that that not only um, were pharmaceutical drugs still made from a, a agricultural crop, but that such a high concentration of this crop was like located in this place that, you know, I think a lot of Americans would probably have a, a difficult time putting on the map. So uh, I, I just started to look into it. So your family, uh, your, your father uh, was a pharmacist, so he had already had some familiarity with how pharmaceutical companies um, were able to produce these painkillers or was he sort of as in the dark as you were about exactly how that pipeline existed? <laughs> right. Yeah, I think, I don't know. I mean, we never really discussed, I mean, prior to prior to this investigation, we never really discussed how, you know, opioids were made, but I know that he did, he was like, um, he did go to conferences and I know that he knew about Purdue Pharma and um, certainly has some familiarity with the the chemistry and pharmacology of these drugs. But um, I, I guess, uh, yeah, I think a lot of people don't know where drugs necessarily come from or how they originate. So I, I guess that's also the thing that's always, always fascinated me. Well, it's definitely a subject that has fascinated me as well. Probably like a lot of people, I first started getting fascinated about the opium poppy supply in the illicit you know, not licit slash legal drug market with the Afghanistan war. And, you know, the, the idea that a large amount of the world's heroin supply was coming from um, Afghanistan poppy fields. But what I learned, you know, over time was that, as you spell out so eloquently in your piece, is that a large amount, a large portion of the pharmaceutical opioid industry, every painkiller, you know, that's opioid related, is largely derived from a licit legal uh, opium poppy supply in other countries apart from Afghanistan. So that, I mean, that was definitely a huge kind of mind-blowing thing for me just on a personal level learning that when 
I suppose it should have been obvious all along in a way, I guess, because where else were they derived? <laughs> the, you know, it's not like they're, they're synthesizing these purely from pure chemicals in a lab. I mean, they, they need to get some kind of precursor and that precursor is, is obviously derived from opium poppies. Yeah, no, no, I mean, it's really, it's a fascinating, I mean, it is sort of interesting why we've shut out these um, certain countries and regions from the illicit supply. And I think understandably pharmaceutical manufacturers don't want to, to be dealing with uh, sort of war-torn regions or places where supply might, um, you know, vary highly from year to year. But at the same time, it's it's surprising that we we did sort of outsource production to another affluent industrialized nation and we also sort of shut out american farmers like there was a conscious decision to not grow opium poppies in the united states and so i guess to me it's just surprising that we we did sort of like in the end we've we've sort of like outsourced production to another sort of affluent industrialized nation and you know it's just farmers in tasmania or in France and Spain and England that are that are now growing these things on an industrial scale. Yeah, it's very very fascinating. And just just really quickly, there was actually a time in the United States, and you briefly mentioned this in your article, when American farmers were allowed to grow opium poppies. Is that correct? Yeah, there were there were some like uh, there were some experimental plots that um, I believe this was in the seventies. So a lot of the, the companies started growing experimental plots, and it seemed like they were very successful in growing uh, poppies here. But the concern was that if we bumped up production, uh, that would sort of like send a message to the rest of the world that we weren't really we weren't really serious about our commitments to sort of drug control. And you know, I I I don't know how uh, genuine that uh, concern is, but uh, it sort of like was was one of the reasons that um, those those experiments were eventually shut down. I see. Well, let's go back to, so I'm going to sort of go out of order here because the thing that's sort of circulating in the news now, the, the mainstream news is reporting on this Johnson & Johnson. This wasn't actually a lawsuit, was it? This was just the state of Oklahoma ordering Johnson & Johnson to pay a huge fine, or am I getting that incorrect? No, I mean it was a it was a trial, but there wasn't a, there wasn't a jury trial. So the the judge ordered them Johnson and Johnson to pay the state of Oklahoma five hundred seventy two million dollars, and so this was like a three month trial earlier this summer, and um, the state had sort of asked for I think seventeen billion dollars, so it was kind of a, a a fairly modest amount, and I think in Johnson and Johnson's bottom line, this is fairly negligible, but they say, they still said that they're going to appeal. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it was also like this first time that uh, opioid manufacturer had gone to trial. So it was seen as this really uh, a sort of precedent setting, um, a precedent setting uh, legal, legal move. And so the fact that I think a lot of people were actually surprised that uh, the judge ruled in favor of the state. I think that some people thought that, you know, Johnson and Johnson had just abided by the regulations and rules that existed. And, and they were sort of like a very minor player in the, the opioid crisis. So I, th I think a little, I think a lot of people were sort of surprised by, 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 by what happened on Monday. 
Yeah, it seemed to be quite unprecedented. And we've been hearing a lot. I mean, it could be partly because the media has been covering the opioid crisis and OxyContin addiction pretty heavily for the last few years. It's become like almost like a, you know, a mainstream topic of discussion. And it really wasn't something that was on people's radar this much before. And we've heard about the company Purdue Pharma a lot lately in these, in all these stories um, in regards to the opioid crisis in general, that they are primarily responsible for the rise in OxyContin addiction. Even the Sackler family themselves gets, you know, mentioned in a lot of these stories. They pioneered the Contin line of opiates and aggressively marketed them to doctors and hospitals after OxyContin's release in 1995. Can you explain a little bit about the company Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family and why OxyContin specifically led to a rise in opioid painkiller addictions in the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, I think one one factor in sort of like the Sacklers getting hammered is that they're a private company. And so I think that, you know, even though their market share maybe is not as large as Johnson & Johnson or Mallinckrodt or Endo or some of these larger pharmaceutical companies, like they're a private company and, and really, we know very little about their finances. But um, I guess the other thing that's significant is that they they were sort of they they pioneered this like pharmaceutical marketing uh, technique and were also um, as you pointed out they they launched oxycontin which was this long acting form of oxycodone which is a a semi synthetic opioid that's used to treat pain and they were able to you know this was for terminal cancer pain but they were able to sort of like broaden the the market and and market this for all sorts of pain and i think once people saw what they were doing and that they had successfully mark like broadened the market for this this very potent opioid that 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 it's sort of like other other companies sort of like followed suit and and said we want to do that too of, of course like oxycontin was um reformulated and so there, there's like a tamper-resistant coating, so it sort of makes it harder to snort and inject. So OxyContin 80 milligrams was selling for like $80 on the street. And I think like since it's been reformulated, a lot of people switched from using this highly regulated pharmaceutical drug to, to using illicit um, heroin and heroin that's now laced with fentanyl. So yes, I think that that, that reformulation also has sort of like uh, driven the 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 lethality of the over, overdose crisis, which I think has become at least, at least until the last couple of years has had sort of like worsened after the reformulation of of oxycontin. That's interesting. I I wouldn't have figured that that would happen, but that that makes sense. And additional to that, the idea that addicts you know will have a hard time using it after they've you know, put these tamper resistant measures on it really only applies to addicts who inject or snort their opioids. I mean, there's still plenty of people, I would say probably, I don't know if this is statistically shown, but I mean, it seems that most of the people who are addicted to opioids in general, just ingest pills, you know, orally. So that still doesn't prevent, you know, maybe they're putting these tamper resistant measures so that people can't get through the time release mechanism, but you could still chew up you know, an 80 milligram Oxycontin pill and, and get really high. I mean, that they'll never be able to prevent that. You know, they were even trying to do that with, with amphetamines in the 80s. They made dexedrine, you know, uncrushable or like unsnortable, they claimed. But 
you can see videos online of people popping open the Dexedrine tablets, you know, all those little tiny balls and then crushing them very fairly easily. So all these things can generally be circumvented, but it's strange that, you know, the, I, I guess I just find it strange, but that's an interesting point about Purdue being a private company and that is possibly why they've been dragged through the dirt in the media more. I mean, deservedly so. I think they also put their name on a lot of buildings and that sort of like opened themselves up to criticism in a way that, you know, I think maybe other companies, I mean, Mallinckrodt and Johnson & Johnson have also slapped their name on, you know, academic institutions. But I think the Sackler name is just like so prominent in in like the art world and other places. So true. in a way, I feel like they open themselves up to, to, to further criticism. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I was just at the... Um... MET Museum in New York and there's like a whole Sackler room or right. wing of the museum. Right. But it turns out Johnson and Johnson, uh, you know, this household name company that's, you know, no more tears, shampoo, uh, all these, you know, familiar products going back to my childhood was Purdue Pharma's primary supplier of raw opium latex. And this, and essentially this raw opium is the precursor needed to produce most painkillers Currently on the market, all pretty much all opioid painkillers. So this is a licit market, meaning legally sanctioned by the DEA, the U.S., and other governments. Can you explain, just in general, for people who have no awareness of this legal market, how does it generally operate? Uh, I mean, it's like a highly regulated uh, market, and sort of the companies petition the DEA to produce a certain amount or to import a certain amount and the DEA usually comes back to them and says you can produce this amount and then the DEA goes to this other international narcotics control board which sort of like looks at or at least keeps track of how many opioids are being imported or produced by a given country and and then there's the the supplying countries which are sort of regulated by various treaties the 1961 treaty and, and and some others since then but it basically says like who can be part of the legal market so it all it all operates under this like uh regulated highly uh controlled framework like i think up until 2000 there were really only two or three major pharmaceutical companies that were importing uh licit opioids into the united states so this was like a very I mean, I, I've heard some people call them a cartel, but it is very like there were very few players in this market. And currently um, in 2019, which countries can U.S. companies, these very few U.S. companies actually legally import this raw opium from? Turkey and India. Um, those are the two main suppliers, right? Well, those, are the t those, those are sort of the ones that were obligated to... Um, import morphine from so the older way of producing is morphine and the new way is sort of like the way that they they grow poppies they just grow them up like a field of corn or wheat and then they mow them down and then they extract the active ingredients from those dry poppies whereas like in india there's still the traditional method of like scoring the the opium poppy and scraping up the sticky gum so I don't know. There were certain distortions that the U.S. put into the illicit market to favor India and Turkey, which were sort of like the developing allied nations that we wanted to to favor. But there were also sort of like industrial operations in Australia, Hungary, Poland, France, Spain, 
we can import from those nations, but uh, in the mid '90s, Tasmania slash Australia sort of emerged as like the they had this like breakthrough product, which was Thebane, and that's what all the companies wanted, and and the Tasmanian farmers and the the government of of Australia was also very eager to to sort of provide as much as the U.S. market would would want. Uh, let's go to th- the idea of Thebane for a second and why it's important in in, in producing a specific kind of uh, painkiller. I mean, it seems that your article centers around Tasmania, and it appears that the this, and I don't know if this company exists anymore, but one of Johnson & Johnson's subsidiaries, Tasmanian Alkaloids, actually seemed to have cornered the market on this highly potent opium poppy, which had a high potency of Thebane. Explain why that is valuable and, and, and what that means. Yeah, so Thebane is an opioid. It's not really given to people as medi- medication or it's not used therapeutically. So it's, it's just like this chemical precursor, whereas like morphine is something that, you know, you could inject and um, or you could take orally and it, it is pharmacologically active in humans so it's also make thebane was sort of like seen as this thing that maybe people would be less likely to want to to steal or divert and it was also companies could like morphine is more difficult to convert into semi-synthetic pharmaceuticals the kinds of like oxycodone or oxycontin or hydrocodone all these other this this entire class of drugs that was becoming very popular in the united states so it's easier to make those marketable drugs out of Thebane than it is to make them out of morphine. And morphine was sort of the traditional opium poppy. So Thebane sort of like, instead of like doing certain manufacturing steps in a lab, it's like the the plant just stopped. It just made this one alkaloid that was sort of easier for people to work with. And it was like much cheaper to to work with as well. And so, like one of the one of the one of the chemists that was sort of involved in like making this breakthrough poppy, he told me it it more than halved the costs of making oxycodone. Wow. Okay. You also met up with a farmer in Tasmania who worked for or who used to work for Tasmanian Alkaloids, this Johnson and Johnson subsidiary. What did this farmer tell you to help you with your story, and how did you even get in contact with them in the first place? Yeah, so I actually spent a, a couple of weeks in Tasmania and met with a number of farmers. So he wasn't the only one that I that I talked to, but um, I thought he was like sort of he was he he was very technical. He used drones and had like technical wherewithal that, and and he was also sort of like aware that there was this this problem in the United States. And so yeah, I I, I met with him. Basically, I spent a day with him, and um, you know, he he showed me. The, the fields where he grew poppies and, and sort of explained his family had sort of like traditionally been raising livestock. And I think this is like pretty typical story of Tasmanian farmers was that, and, and there just wasn't enough money to be made in, in livestock or in raising sheep for, for wool production. The markets had sort of like tanked and a lot of young farmers had sort of like said, you know, I'm going to go off and join the world of finance in mainland Australia or, you know, find some other line of work. But to me, he was like sort of representative of this like young generation of farmers that really saw if you put, 
you put enough like technological investment into into your farm that you could sort of like make a lot of money raising uh, opium poppies for for these pharmaceutical companies. But I but I think like Will was one Will Bignell, who's the farmer that I mentioned in the article. He was sort of like one of the few people that seemed to have some some awareness or some realization that yeah maybe maybe the product that I'm growing or maybe the the raw material that I'm growing gets turned into a product that that is not not entirely beneficial to the world. I mean, like a lot of people are helped with this and they can treat their pain, but it, it seemed like he had also sort of like come into contact firsthand with people that their relatives had overdosed on on pills and he had some some sort of awareness or ability to reflect on that in a way that I think a lot of farmers just didn't really think about that the United States is really far away and th these problems that we have here are sort of like out of sight, out of mind. I would imagine too that there's, you know, a significant amount of Oxycontin abusers in, in Australia as well. I, I guess this is something I'm completely ignorant on, but it was this guy like an Australian? I mean, are most people currently in Tasmania, they're, they're not Aborigines, they're, they're Australian. Is that I mean, is that correct? Right, right. They're white, white Caucasian Australians. Um, okay. And, and this farmer that you met, you actually got to see his, his farm and, and some of his poppy fields. Yeah. He had, he had just planted his crop and he was like irrigating the day that I, we met and the plants were, you know, a couple inches tall at that point. And what, what was his actual process? So you said that some of these more traditional methods, like that they still use illicit opium manufacturing in like India, for example, they still do the traditional scoring method where they, you know, slice open the pods and let the, the opium sort of ooze out. What did, what did he do? Did he do anything surprising? I don't think he was doing anything unusual, um, per se, but I think that, I mean, it's like a very high intensity, it's like a very high value crop. So it's not like growing corn in the Midwest where there's just like miles and miles and miles of corn, right? And yeah. You know, if you lose if you lose a little bit because your your ground is saturated or something, it's like no great loss. I mean, like if so he he was like sort of he was looking at like aerial maps and trying to find like where the drainage was problematic cuz you know that could that could be like several thousand dollars or more in losses. So I think I mean, that was, in a sense, somewhat unusual, but I mean, like, it's, it was sort of just like growing another, any other crop. And it, I guess if there's anything different about what he was doing, it was just like a much more intensive, like, there's lots of applications of, of, of herbicides and, and pesticides and other sort of like growth promoters. So it was like a, it definitely required a lot of like attention, maybe more so than, than you think of like wheat or corn. But at the end of the day, like the, the poppies grow up, they dry, they shrivel up into this like gray brown pods. And then the companies uh, send out contractors with these combine harvesters and they just like mow it down. And that's what gets turned into the, the raw material that, you know, makes pharmaceutical drugs. That's fascinating. So it's a totally different, it seems like a much more industrialized style farming method than than sort of what we've we've traditionally seen pictures and videos of of these you know right. opium farmers sort of walking carefully through the through the fields and it's it's sort of fascinating to me how we don't really like I haven't even seen any video or documented you know like a 
photojournalism of this kind of activity. And I'm, I'm wondering, is there any chance that there's some kind of like, do the, do the companies that hire these people don't want them to photograph these things? Is it something that's just sort of kept on the down low? Like, why is that, that we don't really see photography or video of the, of these licit opium markets? Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's just maybe people are, I mean, it's not a, a super interesting process to watch, you know, a, a combine harvester mow this stuff <laughs> down, but, uh, you know, good point. But, uh, yeah, there, there are certain videos. I think it's just like people maybe don't, don't really know about it or think about it or it's not, I, I think there's a lot of romanticism around, um, more traditional means of growing and, and even like smoking opium is there's all this like sort of like romanticism about that. And I think that this is just sort of like a, uh, almost rote industrial process that, um, I think a lot of people just don't know about. So, yeah. um, I think if you went looking, you, you maybe would find a couple of drone videos where, uh, you know, these, these combines are crisscrossing the fields of, of licit, licit opium. So he didn't, he didn't seem like he didn't want you to take any photographs. Like he didn't seem like he was. Oh no. Concerned. He seemed very eager to share, share his, his, um, methodologies and let me, onto the fields and it didn't seem like it was a secret in any way or any risk of diversion or uh, theft or anything like that. It would, it, I don't know. In some ways I feel like the Tasmanians are sort of like they, they downplay, they, they seemingly like are really uh, brash and bold and think that what they're doing is sort of like the best thing on earth. But at the same time, they're just like, yeah, um, you know, it's, it's not something that anybody knows about. And, this one guy just said it's like it's just part of the furniture. So it's just like people see the fields all the time, and I, I don't think they give a lot, a whole lot of thought to them. But um, you know, I think that maybe has changed in the last five years since the 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 opioid crisis has sort of like percolated um, into the 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 national media and the sort of international uh, conversation. Yeah, well, that's that's really interesting. I mean, it's it seems. If we're talking about the classic term cash crop, it's hard to picture or think of any other crop that is actually this valuable. So it would make sense why people, you know, even maybe have just a certain level of cognitive dissonance about it. I mean, it's so profitable. Why worry too much about the the actual consequences of it? Yeah, not very true. But tell me, why? what is it about Tasmania? Is it, do they just happen to have indigenous opium poppies that have more thebane or was somebody crossbreeding to deliberately increase this potency of thebane is it just does it just happen to be a, a good region of the world to do this like i don't i don't quite understand why tasmania was is such a hub and and, and, and exports so much of this currently yeah i mean it's it's sort of like this quirk I mean, like the so the the experiments where they were growing poppies in the United States was actually growing thebane poppy, but um, so people have known about thebane for a long time, and I think it was just like a sort of because oxycontin had been approved, and there was a, like this sort of exploding new market for this class of drugs that thebane could be turned into. Like uh, chemists that were working in Tasmania sort of saw this as like a an opportunity and. Um, so they were able to 
chemically modify the poppy seed in a way that created mutants. And then they planted those chemically mutated uh, poppy seeds. And they were able to find a, a poppy that was very high in T-bane. And I mean, I think anybody could have done that, but it's sort of like they had market exclusivity for a very important window of time when Oxycontin and other of those types of drugs were sort of like the production was being aggressively ramped up. So one of the few places you could get T-Bain at the time in the late 90s was from Tasmania. So they were just able to sort of have uh, sort of exclusive access to the United States market, which is, of course, the world's one of the world's largest licit uh, opioid manufacturing centers. So one of the other things I wanted to ask you specifically is in your article, you say international regulators and the DEA noticed Tasmanian suppliers were sidestepping the spirit of the original rules. But rather than closing the supply loophole, the DEA did what pharmaceutical lobbyists had been asking for and left the oxycodone pipeline wide open. Uh, can you explain how they left it wide open and how what were the suppliers doing to sidestep these original rules? Well, I mean, I think the original rules had said like the United States will favor these traditional, these nations that traditionally grew um, opium poppies, such as India and Turkey. So in practice, like the United States favored India and Turkey. And those are places where um, opium poppies have been growing for, for, for a very long period of time. Whereas Australia, like the industry didn't really exist before the 1960s. So allowing manufacturers to import this Tasmanian grown T-bane sort of like without clamping down on it, they which is obviously what what the, the the pharmaceutical companies wanted and they 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 would they argued that like if if that supply was curtailed that they would face shortages that that people would not be able to get painkilling drugs and so their argument was that like you've got to leave this even though the Australia is not the place that all these regulations and rules and international agreements have sort of asked the U.S. to favor. Like, even though they're not the, they shouldn't be our primary suppliers, we're going to leave this, like, sort of loophole, if you will, open because that's what the manufacturers want. They really want the Tasmanian growth debate. And, <laughs> you know, I guess that's just what happened. It's like, Thebane wasn't really in the original rule, so I guess they could have clamped down, but they, they chose not to. And it's, you know, it's not entirely clear why they didn't, but is not entirely surprising that they they didn't given that that pharmaceutical companies probably lobbied the, the these agencies and said you know we're going to have drug shortages if you cut off the supply of cut off Tasmania from our our quota in your article um you link to a 2011 paper where Johnson and Johnson admitted that its company, Tasmanian Alkaloids, I, I still can't get over the name. For some reason, it, it makes me laugh. That Thebane potent poppies were currently supplying 80% of the world's Oxycontin supply. Poppies that they had, you know, that their company, Tasmanian Alkaloids, had supplied. Was this an inadvertent admission? Uh, were they required to disclose this information in some kind of through some kind of legal process, or were they actually just proud of this achievement and just bragging about it in a in a company paper? What was this document? Yeah, I think this was like a, a document that they provided to the Australian government. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's hard to know. I don't think that they were legally obligated to say what percentage of market share they had, but 
I, and I think that um, the document was produced by the subsidiary Tasmanian Alkaloids. And my overall impression is that the subsidiary, the Tasmanian subsidiary at that time was sort of not a very high priority uh, asset for Johnson & Johnson. They were sort of looking to divest in it. It was sort of like this far-flung, low-priority, primarily agricultural research and development facility. It's kind of, I, I got the impression that it was mostly overlooked. So, but it, but, but among, among the uh, sort of like people that worked at Tasmanian Alkaloids, I think they were very proud of, of their achievement and they were proud that they had cornered like such a high percentage of the market. I mean, I think this was really that Tasmanian Alkaloids like bragging about their sort of like an undeniably remarkable achievement that they were able to get such a large percentage of the market share in, in, in a relatively short period of time. It's fascinating. I mean, so the other, I guess, 20%, I think this this whole subject of licit opium manufacturing should have, it seems like it should have a lot more focus from journalists. And I'm surprised, I mean, your article is one of the only articles I've seen that really details a lot of this stuff and gives you sort of an inner look at this industry. Because I just find it absolutely fascinating. I don't think most people have any idea that it's not just that these drugs are extremely similar chemically to heroin and other illegal scheduled, you know, schedule one opioids, but they're, uh, the industries also overlap. I mean, and you actually quote, I think this is actually from an older paper. You have to tell me where it's from. Kathleen J. Friedel, uh, where she says, one of the best ways to discipline the illicit market was to regulate the illicit one. And that's an interesting quote because wouldn't this type of regulation only of the illicit market only affect opioids or are other illicit markets overlapping with the illicit market? And when I say that, I mean other classes of drugs. And if so, how? Because I'm, I can only see yeah. this paradigm helping for opioids, but what, like, is there some, could this be applied more broadly? Yeah, and I think it. I think it does apply more broadly. I mean, I think she's talking about sort of drugs are always regulated as a trade, and so we don't we don't necessarily think of that now. But that's sort of how traditionally drug policy was enacted. And so, like, I don't know, maybe with alcohol, if you discipline the bootleggers, the best way to sort of discipline the or control bootlegging was actually to sort of like create a a, a well regulated legal marketplace for alcohol, which has sort of happened. So, and I think with opioids, the, the problem is that like the, the, the well-regulated licit market has maybe um, been influenced or contaminated in some way by, you know, pharmaceutical lobbying. And I, I think that like, that's, that's one of the sort of big questions that I don't, don't think came up in the, the Oklahoma trial, which I, I sort of was hoping to see was that you know, to what degree did Johnson & Johnson influence or circumvent international law or, or U.S. regulations? I, we can see that they did influence it and they did lobby the DEA to change their import quotas. But yeah, I think there's still, there's still more documents and, and more information that the public really deserves to see and know, like, how well are we regulating the illicit marketplace at this point? We need to have more of an accountability for exactly how this happening, especially while it remains illegal, you know, for someone to recreationally use one of the these products that these companies make. 
I mean, you can you it's a felony to possess without a prescription, um, you know, a certain quantity of OxyContin or whatever um, in the United States. And so taking that into consideration, regular people are paying these penalties, whether it be from minor drug offenses or actually suffering from heavy addiction, opioid addiction. And and one could even make the argument that, you know, some of these newer opioids like OxyContin are actually more addictive in some ways than heroin. They're more potent. We haven't even touched on fentanyl and some of these other things that are all over the press now. And that's a whole other uh, discussion to be having where why is fentanyl, you know, polluting the illicit market now? Illicitly manufactured uh, chemical that's more, way more potent than heroin is now actually being flooded into the illicit heroin supply and is actually causing a huge spike in overdoses. So these things all need to be looked at, at together, I think. And what you're writing about is extremely important. And I hope that you continue to dig further on this subject because there are very few people, I think, giving this the, the coverage that it deserves. So I really appreciate what you've written. Keep up the good work as well. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show and uh, being so interested in this. I think it's a really it's a really fascinating um, world that, that more people should know about and um, certainly something I'd like to keep exploring. Well, thanks for coming on. If you enjoyed what you heard today, check out the work of Peter Smith. He's on Twitter at Peter SM underscore TH and check out his website, PeterAndreSmith.com. And also, as always, please consider donating and supporting Media Roots at patreon.com slash mediarootsradio. We can use every little bit of your support. We really appreciate the support we've gotten so far. You've really been a big encouragement to help us keep doing this. So thank you so much. Take care, everybody.